0: So yes, there are all these questions, well, is burnout the same as depression and why does it matter? And what we're finding is that it kind of depends whether people think that burnout is like less serious than depression. But what we're finding is that it can still be really debilitating so poo-pooing it as a diagnosis might not be adequate. Anyway, and there's studies that have shown that patients that have gone to a GP, for example, because they feel as though they're experiencing burnout and the GP either doesn't recognise it at all or they label it as depression, the patients couldn't feel quite stigmatised by that. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast. A place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose.
1: Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute Podcast. Today I am very thrilled to be joined from the University of New South Wales. Gabriella Tavallo. Welcome, Gabrielle. Hello. Thanks for joining me. So you have been doing a lot of research in and around the concept of burnout. You're about to submit your PhD on burnout, and you've even before your PhD, you've managed to co-author a book. You've authored many, many papers over the past couple of years looking at this concept of burnout. So I'm really excited to look at this topic because it's, as I understand, really prevalent. There's some contention around. It. I suppose, presence and, and definition, and but there's a fair bit of research behind it, both psychological and physiological. So before we dive into it, just yeah, tell me how you got into researching burnout.
0: Yes, yeah, so I have been working with my uh, like PhD supervisor for uh, quite a, a few years, and he primarily were, was working in, he's a psychiatrist working with people with mood disorders, so bipolar or depression. And what he was finding in a lot of his patients was that he was getting referred these patients to assess them for depression. And he was finding that patients, some of them didn't really fit the typical picture of what one with his medical training would come to diagnose with depression. And so he started thinking that perhaps burnout might be more uh, prevalent in his patient population so he, we kind of discussed looking at what the literature says about burnout because as a psychiatrist, he didn't receive any formal medical training on how to diagnose or treat burnout. So that's how we were like, okay, well, let's look into the research about it. And in doing that, we found that there was a lot of issues and a lack of consensus across scientists and practitioners as to you know what burnout is whether it should be considered a mental health condition how it should be diagnosed things like that so that's how we decided to start looking into it deeper and we started researching it and then I kind of built a PhD off that kind of interest that we started looking into.
1: And there is a bit of a history of burnout was first maybe coined in the 70s can you just describe like the and maybe I think throughout history, there's been references to it, as you mentioned, uh, and we'll get into that. It seems like there is overlap, understandably, between like anxiety and depression, even maybe like chronic fatigue. But it feels like throughout the ages, there's been this sense of this concept. And, and even when you say burnout, it intuitively sort of makes sense. But as we get into medically, it, it's gray area that you're really trying to define. So yeah, what's a bit of the, the background of burnout?
0: We talk about in the book, you know, kind of like the ancient history of burnout and looking at, at, you know, these monks in the fifth century that started describing what was labelled acedia or like a lack of passion for life in general, kind of feeling detached, feeling like there was no point to anything. But that wasn't really obviously labelled burnout back then. When we talk about modern society, it first started becoming a research topic from a psychological perspective in the 70s. In America, there was two key researchers. So Freudenberger, he was a psychotherapist and he wrote about experiencing burnout himself and some of his colleagues working with people with drug and alcohol addictions. He started talking about he was feeling burnt out and he was noticing it in his colleagues. And then at the same time, there was another really pivotal researcher in the burnout sphere, and she's still the top researcher today. Her name's Christina Maslach. And she started talking, uh, noticing in... She would interview people that worked in the human services profession, so what we call the caring profession, so things like doctors, nurses, teachers, things like that. And she was interested in how they dealt with the emotional toll of their jobs. And she found that, that, that a lot of those workers were really resonating with this term burnout. They were feeling burnt out. They were losing their passion for their job, feeling disconnected, feeling just really exhausted. So she started doing a lot of, re- her and her team started doing a lot of research into burnout. And then they came up with the most widespread definition that we use today, which is formed the basis of their measure of burnout, the Maslow Burnout Inventory. And they define burnout with that measure as something that's made up of three main, I guess, symptoms. The first one being exhaustion. The second one being feeling a lack of empathy or, or feeling um, a lot of cynicism towards the people that you work with and um, your job in general, as well as a reduced uh, sense of professional accomplishment. So feeling like your efficacy at work is really decreasing. So that definition, has, which started in the 70s, early 80s, that definition is still, I guess, the most popular definition today. But a lot of other researchers have critiqued that definition and have wondered whether those symptoms really adequately capture burnout for a lot of people, especially because you know the, the definition was built on human services workers. But of course, now we we think that burnout can be experienced by people across a whole bunch of different contexts. So it, ourselves included, we've looked at whether the definition should be expanded. And what we're finding in our participants is that a lot of them, those three symptoms are really important, but there's additional symptoms that seem to come out a lot, which include things like cognitive Issues so cognitive dysfunction, so that's like trouble remembering things or trouble focusing and lack of concentration, and then some other important symptoms that we call like insularity or social withdrawal, so that's where you're detaching from the world around you and people around you, and include some symptoms of depression as well, so things like low mood and um, a lack of interest or pleasure in the world around you, which I which you alluded to before, there is a lot of questions as well about whether burnout is different from depression so that that's another big thing that's been throughout the literature though since the 70s and that is another thing that we kind of are looking at as well in our research
1: yeah you've explained a lot there and just from my quick look it's uh, there's been a lot of work that you've and others have done to to tease out these um answers so kudos to you and we'll get into that more before we do It's probably people again, intuitive people feels like a lot of people are experiencing this. Can you just describe some of the the prevalence and like when I frame it up what's the so what if it is different to depression? Does that mean different treatment? Can you just describe first of all like the prevalence and the impact on the person and has it a ripple effect on the family and society and so forth?
0: Yes. With prevalence statistics, I guess. Um, There is some studies that report in the general working population that burnout rates can be as high as about 30%. So like almost a third of the population experiencing burnout. And then those stats are going to be higher in occupations that have really high demands, but low resources. So that's things like uh, medicine, nursing, things like that. Those, Those occupations that, you know, are kind of expected to have more people with burnout. So, yes, there are all these questions. Well, is burnout the same as depression and why does it matter? And what we're finding is that it kind of depends whether people think that burnout is, like, less serious than depression. But what we're finding is that it can still be really debilitating. So poo-pooing it as a diagnosis might not be adequate Anyway, and there's studies that have shown that patients that have gone to a GP, for example, because they feel as though they're experiencing burnout and the GP either doesn't recognise it at all or they label it as depression, the patients couldn't feel quite stigmatised by that. So there's one study where I can't remember the researcher's name, but she talks about how patients reported feeling like they really struggled to be perceived as ill and not just lazy or they were getting diagnosed with depression and then being prescribed antidepressants, which there are um, a lot of reports of that happening. And without evidence base for doing that, some patients feel as though that can make their symptoms worse. Burnout can can be very debilitating for individuals, but because the research, there's so much lack of consensus, it kind of means that the people that are experiencing these symptoms can kind of be left in the dark. Some studies show that burnout is linked to suicidal thinking, which is obviously like very alarming. And then other studies say like, no, it's not associated. That's more of a depression thing. So you're going to a doctor because you think you've got burnout and then they don't assess for suicidal thinking. That could be a huge problem if things are missed just because there's not really this strong evidence base for burnout in the research literature.
1: It sort of reminds me, chronic fatigue syndrome, maybe like in the 90s was was it labelled like the yuppie flu and was dismissed and, and that probably prevented serious research and, and recognition and maybe, yeah, delayed development of treatment. So, yeah, hopefully it does get further recognised. The other thing you mentioned was exhaustion. Is it hard to tease out from chronic fatigue syndrome? Is there differences as well? Yes.
0: Yeah, so chronic fatigue syndrome is um, like a somewhat ambiguous illness in the same way that burnout is. And they're both characterised by extreme fatigue and other things, other non-specific physical symptoms, as well as lack of performance um, and like absenteeism from work, for example. So there is a lot of overlap between the two, but there has been some studies looking at how to tease out the differences from like an etiological perspective. One of the key differences seems to be that burnout is usually attributed to being caused by the psychological stresses and usually in the workplace, whereas chronic fatigue syndrome is usually attributed to a physiological or physical issue. So, like a, they, it can be labelled as a post viral infection, chronic fatigue syndrome. And then another difference is that people with burnout, uh, one of the arguments is people with burnout, they're not just exhausted, they also have this disconnection from their work, this lack of empathy. And these other symptoms that aren't necessary criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome. So there is the fact that burnout seems to be kind of multidimensional is another Mm. argument that people say is why it's different from chronic fatigue syndrome.
1: Right. Interesting. So in one of your recent papers, I think you created like a checklist of criteria because there is this similarity between chronic fatigue and depression. Had these checklists, I think the first one was has a stressor triggered it? there's about four or five gates can you describe the rationale
0: yeah so we did we wrote a paper that was it wasn't a study it was more just a like kind of a clinical perspective paper where we're talking about how so currently burnout isn't considered a diagnosable condition in the same way that things like depression and anxiety are because it's not in the dsm which is the diagnostic manual that america and australia that's usually that's kind of like the mental health diagnosis bible, I guess. So, burnout isn't in that manual. So, it is really hard for people to diagnose it. And also, it's hard for individuals to access things like sick leave compensation, for example, because it's not a formally diagnosable um, condition. Even though it is, some European countries, they recognise burnout as an occupational disease but it's not so much of a thing in Australia and so that paper that we wrote we kind of were putting forward the argument that it should be included as kind of a mental health condition but in order to do that they need we need to come up with you know some specific diagnostic criteria mm. um, which is what you know depression and anxiety they've got these criteria in these manuals. So what we were saying for burnout is because so that we we gave a list of five symptoms, which were some of the symptoms I had talked about earlier. So that's exhaustion, cognitive issues, lack of empathy, social withdrawal, and reduced work performance talking about how you kind of need to have all of them to so that we don't over diagnose but mm-hmm. also because there's so much of an overlap with things like depression we also want to look at whether the what the primary cause of these symptoms are so what we're finding in our research is that some of our preliminary evidence suggests that while there so there is some research to suggests that you can get depression in your workplace and there's also research to suggest that you can get burnout outside of your workplace so that's Quite confusing because it means Mm. that how do you delineate the two? But what we're kind of finding is that, regardless of whether it's inside or outside of the workplace, we find that the burnout stresses are usually things that are more, I guess, like structural. So things like being overloaded at work, for example, or having a lot of responsibilities in your caring duty versus depression, where it's more likely to be stresses that impact on your self esteem or like interpersonal issues. So if I give a more concrete example, In the workplace, with depression, you might, if you're being bullied at work and that's impacting on your self-esteem, that might, you know, lead to a primary depression. Whereas um, in the workplace, being overloaded with lots of tasks, that could lead more to burnout. And Mm. same outside of work, if we look at things like if you are in a relationship that is you know you're having a lot of conflict in a relationship or you're in an abusive relationship which again is going to diminish your self-esteem you might be more prone to depression whereas the burnout it's more just the fact that you you're just like very overloaded Um, you've got so many responsibilities you've got so you're juggling so many things so it's kind of like these nuanced differences in cause that might be important if you're trying to tease out whether the primary diagnosis should be burnout or depression
1: yeah yeah that's really clear to me that's really good the way i see it and the way i just sort of described in the book was it seems to be like a a stress reaction so i want to dive into that in two parts first i feel like there's the patient or the subject's experience of stress and then there's almost there's this physiological response as well with this allostatic overload concept so first of all like there seems to be some psychological factors that may put someone at risk or is more prevalent in patients with burnout the one that and I think there might be a more broader overarching term, was it dutifulness? But perfectionist, it seems to come up commonly in people with burnout. Can you describe the the findings there?
0: Yeah, so there are a few different personality styles or traits that have been linked to burnout previously. So things like neuroticism, so that's where you're insular and you're, you're overly sensitive and you uh, are more, more prone to anxiety. So that's a type of personality style that's been linked to burnout. Um, other ones like type A personalities, so that's where you're like super ambitious, kind of like to the detriment of all else, because you're so focused on achieving these goals that it, if it doesn't go to plan, that can kind of have some uh, negative impacts on your mental well being. But what we're finding and what some other researchers have found is that perfectionism seems to be a key risk factor to developing burnout. And that's because, well, some so there is some debate in the research literature as to whether there's kind of two types of perfectionism. So people think that there half the well, some perfectionism is adaptive or I guess like normal, in I say mm. that in quotation marks, where they're, like a person's really motivated to achieve their goals and they experience pleasure when they do so, but their self-esteem doesn't hinge so much on whether or not those goals are achieved exactly how they want them to be. But then there's what we call maladaptive or I guess neurotic perfectionism, where the individual, their identity is really tied into whether or not they achieve these goals and they get everything perfect. So they're setting these really unrealistic standards for themselves which is kind of the definition of what a perfectionist does and then when they can't reach those goals because they're so high and they're so unrealistic they experience like feelings of being a failure self-criticism drop in self-esteem things like that and because of that you've got these people who are never able to achieve the things that they're setting for themselves to achieve which can then lead to them getting to the point where they're just kind of like well what's the point and that can kind of make them prone to burnout. But we've got this chicken and egg scenario where people that are perfectionistic are going to be more likely to have jobs that require Mm. perfectionism. So that's like being a doctor or a lawyer, for example. You know, you need to, if you're a lawyer, if you do, if you make a mistake, you know, that can cost people hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you're a doctor, you make a mistake. It, it can cost people's lives, things like that. So people that are more perfectionistic are more likely to go into these roles in the first place, and then these roles are more likely to someone susceptible to burnout. So it's kind of this like, what is it the perfectionism that's making them more prone to burnout, or is it because they're working in these jobs that require perfectionism? So, yeah, it's an interesting factor, these psychological factors and how they intermix with, you know, your work stresses to kind of make you develop burnout in, in the end
1: yeah in the book you discuss and i was going to discuss it later in this treatment part but while it's fresh in our minds is it sort of malleable and plastic can we have a more functional perfectionism for one, of a better term i think you mentioned the research overall like cbt cognitive behavior therapy overall isn't that effective for burnout but maybe for those who are high in perfectionism it's maybe more effective
0: Research looking at interventions for burnout are kind of inconclusive, and that's because, well, firstly, there's the problems with defining burnout that I talked about earlier, which means that the studies are hard to kind of like, what are they measuring uh, as their outcome? But also because a lot of studies either look at personal interventions, you know, maybe like resilience training for the workers versus other studies that are looking at how an organisation can implement some structural changes to reduce burnout in their employees. And we kind of need studies looking at both. So it kind of depends, I guess, on the industry. In medicine, there's going to be some structural changes that would be, you know, really beneficial to prevent people from getting burnout. But that's easier said than done. Um, So for people that are perfectionistic or have psychological traits that might make them vulnerable to, you know, getting overwhelmed and things like that at work, CBT or cognitive behavioural therapy can be useful because the point of CBT is to work out why a person acts the way they act and why they and the way they think about the world and kind of what the underlying beliefs are that make Mm. them think these things in the way that make them act this way and the point of CBT is to alter those kind of ways of thinking to to become a bit more adaptive and allow that individual to cope better with their day-to-day stresses. So with CBT for someone with perfectionism, for example, we had we had a psycho clinical psychologist in who we interviewed for the book. So we, we we have an extract from him in the book and he gives this example of so for someone that is perfectionistic That might is might be in a managerial role. They um, might struggle to delegate tasks to people that they manage, and they spend extra hours at work because they have this thought that my employees are going to make mistakes unless I check all the work Mm. that they do. And so, because of that, that person's really taking on that extra load. And so, with CBT, you're trying to work out, okay, well, why do you think that they're going to make mistakes? And what would be the consequence if did make mistakes? And the person might say, well, if they make mistakes, then it falls on me and then I'll get fired or things like that. And so the point of CBT, I guess, is the cognitive part is where you're trying to challenge those thoughts. So, you know, you, you would go through a process. I mean, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but with the cognitive part of the therapy it would be something like to do with challenging the thought process. So, like, what do you predict will happen? How likely is that going to happen? How many times have you made that prediction and it actually came true? What would be the consequences of that if that actually happened? So trying to get you to kind of restructure the way you think about things that you think will happen every day. And then the behavioural part is working out, well, what if you do these certain behaviours? What is the outcome? And are are the outcomes what you thought they were going to be? And Mm. if they are, so firstly, in that example of that manager, firstly, if you don't check your workers' work and that's your behavioural task... And okay, firstly, do they make as much mistakes as you think they will? Probably not. And also, if they did make those mistakes, well, what was the outcome? Did you get fired? Or did your boss just say, oh, that's fine, we can just amend that, that's okay. So kind of adapt the way that people think about the world and the way that affects their behaviour to try and alter those personality traits that people think are just part of who they are. But CBT can help to alter them um, and make someone interact more adaptively with the world
1: yeah on the personality traits and i don't even know if there's a, a scientific term for it but and it might link into the perfectionism but also it felt like you know for one, a better term they sweat the small stuff people get too fixated on the finer details and it just my conception of this cognitive overload with everything you know got so much on their plate is that a factor in burnout
0: People that are perfectionistic, it's, what's that saying? They can't see the forest through the trees. or yeah. so, And things that perfecti- people with perfectionistic traits do, they'll tend to procrastinate as well because they're so worried about getting things done perfectly that they'll put off starting it. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, you're procrastinating, you're not starting your work, which means that then you're getting more and more things to do, but you can't make heads or tails of anything because you're just too anxious about getting it wrong. Then it's kind of like this cycle and it's making you more prone to be more burnt out because you've got all these other things now piling up on your plate. So I guess like a non-CBT approach to those kind of things would be just focusing on like getting things started and getting things Mm. done rather than making sure they're perfect from the start. Like you want to just, for example, I'm a bit perfectionistic and like with writing my thesis, for example, it's like I just need to write it and then fix it later rather rather than worrying about... I need to do it perfect the first time because that really stops me from making any progress. So they're kind of things from a less, you don't necessarily need to go to a therapist for that, but kind of making these little goals for yourself. It's kind of trying to overcome this anxiety and this like strive for everything to be perfect from the get-go.
1: Mm. So going from the, the mind to the body then, fascinating, you read a, you off of a really good paper, it was the biology of burnout, getting to the area of how, a patient they react from this stressor through their nervous system but also their immune system and so forth and the potential consequences to health ramifications of this alarm state so you've got a a nice diagram in the paper put a link to the paper this sort of allostatic overload chiefly triggered by this occupational stress so first of all is burnout really like is it a modern or is it stress reaction to chronic stress how would you describe it from a physiological perspective
0: We have a working hypothesis that it is like a new, it's a stress response, but it's nuanced. It's like a nuanced stress response because of its causes and its symptoms. And so, stress in general can be caused by a whole range of things. And stresses can also, in some scenarios, stress can be pleasurable and it can also enhance performance, for Mm. example, like a professional sports player. But we think that with burnout, you've got these specific stresses that are usually from a work context. But we we believe that it's not just paid employment; it can be unpaid or like informal work. So being a carer or a parent, for example. So the the causes are more specific, and the the reaction is invariably negative. So there's there's not really any psychological benefits of burnout and also we think that even if burnout is just kind of like the end stage of chronic stress we still advocate for keeping the burnout label as a standalone label because it because it kind of resonates so much with everyone mm-hmm employers for example are going to take it more seriously like everyone's going to experience stress in their life but not everyone's going to experience burnout so having burnout as the thing that we're trying to prevent might make employers more motivated to prevent that thing than just prevent stress in general so that's why we think it's like a more nuanced stress response but the the research in terms of like the physiology of burnout is that it the body systems that are impacted by exposure to chronic stress are what is impacted in people with burnout. So that would be things like the autonomic nervous system, which is responsible for your flight and fight or flight response. So like when you're presented with an acute stressor, the this system activates and um, it'll like mean your heart rate goes up and your blood pressure goes up and you release hormones like adrenaline, things like that. But the theory with stress is that there's like a sustained activation theory, which is where prolonged ex- exposure to a stressor kind of means that autonomic nervous system, which and part of that is the sympathetic nervous system, that's just act- because it's so activated all the time, it prevents those, that system from returning back to normal levels. And that's where you get all these physiological um, like kind of flow on effects from that. Um, And so what research has found is that you can kind of measure the autonomic nervous system by looking at um, heart rate variability, looking at the balance between your sympathetic nervous system, which is like flight and flight stuff, and the parasympathetic nervous system, which is looking at more the rest and digest. So that's the system responsible for kind of conserving energy to be used later for sustaining processes like digestion, things like that when you're feeling safe. So, you, if you look at heart rate variability, which kind of measures whether those systems are functioning properly, in studies with burnout, people with burnout can have decreased heart rate variability. So, that's what's found most often, which means decreased from normal compared to healthy controls. But then other studies have also shown that it can lead to increased heart rate variability. Yeah, right. So the evidence is inconclusive there in that, you know, you can go either direction, but there does seem to be evidence that it's either way, either direction, it's not the same as a healthy control participant. Um, yep. So that's that's some indication that this sustained activation of this system is going to have some detrimental consequences on your body, as well as the BA axis. so the which is, involves your, like your hypothalamus, pituitary glands and your adrenal glands, which also responds to stress, but in a slower way. It's not like immediately activated. It's not the fight or flight. It's more to do with the release of cortisol, so the stress hormones throughout the body. And what... We find in a healthy person, everyone has normal amounts of cortisol that kind of flow through their body throughout the day. Um, It's usually low very early in the morning, and then after you wake up, the levels of cortisol will peak, and then they kind of decrease again across the day. And so what we can do is there's a method that you can measure the cortisol in in lots of ways, but one method is um, measuring the cortisol awakening response. So that's where you're checking the levels of cortisol in people's saliva after they wake up and then at intervals of time after that. And what uh, most studies have found in relation to burnout is that people with burnout have a reduced cortisol awakening response, so what we call hypo-cortisolism. H-Y-P-O, cortisolism. But there are other studies, of, of course, that show that people with burnout have hyper cortisolism, which is where they have more cortisol. So again, the studies are a bit inconclusive, but most studies show that the burnout is, rela- is related to reduced cortisol in, throughout the body. And interestingly, studies suggest that depression is associated with hypercortisolism ah. so where you've got an uh, increased amount of cortisol in the body so, I mean there are nuances to that with to do with the depressive subtypes which I can go into later if if wanted but yeah so that might be one difference in that burnout's got this effect of reducing the amount of cortisol in the body or this cortisol awakening response whereas depression in some studies has shown the opposite effect
1: yeah Interesting. So it's a bit of a, a contentious area, particularly in like natural medicine. And it was mentioned in the book, and I can see that the utility there. Whether you had a case study of a patient who had uh, long-standing symptoms, and it wasn't until they googled or read about the "quote-unquote" adrenal fatigue and used that model, and I think was the catalyst for their their recovery. So on one hand, it's a nice simple meme to say this adre- adrenal fatigue, but on the flip side, physiologically. I don't think it's the adrenal glands necessarily pathological in a sense. Do you have a have, have you looked at this much? And I sometimes think it's a is an adaptation to prevent the excessive cortisol. Too much cortisol can affect, a particularly brain function. And I sense it's a more of a functional dialing down of the cortisol rather than pathological um, burning out of the the tissue in the gland. You explored a little bit in your paper. Do you have any sort of views or comments? And again, like, does it really matter if it's adrenal fatigue or not adrenal fatigue? Any, how would you frame it up?
0: In terms of like whether adrenal fatigue is a thing, I'm yeah, not really, yeah. I guess I'm not really qualified to make that assertion. But in terms of whether it matters, so like this overactivation of your HPA axis, which is the, the cortisol issue, can increase what we call the allostatic load, which is Mm. where... So like your body is always striving to achieve homeostasis, which is like a kind of a range of bodily functions that they need to stay in to be functioning normally. So like blood pressure, blood glucose, things like that. And allostasis is the short-term adaptions that your body makes to try and get back to homeostasis when it goes to a stressor that kind of changes that range outside of the preferred range. What the sustained activation of the HPA axis can do is it means that you've got like an increased allostatic load so mm. you're repeated, repeatedly or chronically exposed to stresses that put pressure on your body because it's always trying to return to homeostasis it's always trying to get back to that normal range and because of that you can have things like increased blood pressure insulin issues like um, even things like weight circumference and other parameters that they use to measure allostatic load and studies show that indicators of allostatic load in people with burnout. You know, people with burnout have differences in their body weight, weight circumferences, BMI, blood, pr- blood pressure, and things like that compared to people or healthy controls. Kind of an indicator that people with burnout, they have more wear and tear on their yep. – they're putting their body yep. through more wear and tear. And because of things like that, there's been studies that have also shown that people with burnout are at higher risk of things like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and other conditions, and that's because of this allostatic load that's being put on the body because of this, like, chronic exposure to stress. So yeah. in that way, it whether or not, I know, sorry, I've kind of gone away from the question, but whether or not adrenal fatigue or burnout or whatever the label is, the research suggests that these physiological impacts can, they can have a broad range of impacts regardless of what, you know, we label it exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. So I might ask a slightly different question, and thanks for that. And this is obviously neither us giving any health advice or anything, but what about testing heart rate variability? We saw the there is conflicting results. The cortisol test, there's different types. We can maybe do the the awakening response or the diurnal and so forth. Is there any value in patients monitoring? Is it more monitoring against themselves rather than sort of a a population norm or? Is that just looking at this plasticity or whatever you want to call it, the stress response? And for burnout, is it better looking at those sort of end products, as you said, waist circumference and blood pressure and so forth, which are a bit more overt markers?
0: From a diagnosis perspective, I guess it's not that useful because those things, cortisol levels and allisonic load indicators can be, they can
1: Non-specific. Be,
0: yeah, they're very yeah. non-specific and that could be caused by a lot of things. Yeah. Um, We talk about how we even talk about in terms of the symptoms of burnout can also be the symptoms of so many other things. So, like, we kind of talk about in the book that the most important thing would be, like, clinical reasoning. And you're trying to do, like, a differential diagnosis. So, you're trying to work out what's probably the primary cause or the primary issue because, you know, someone with burnout might also have Adrenal fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome or whatever. And all the the symptoms all overlap. They could have a physical issue that's not even related to that. And all the symptoms look like the same thing. So using your clinical experience to kind of tease out what's the most likely primary diagnosis. And I know that sounds quite vague and a bit ambiguous, which is a shame. And that's the problem with the burnout literature. But I would say that the same thing kind of applies for things that are better defined so like depression and anxiety depression and anxiety overlap a lot as well and they most there's a lot of comorbidity between the two but I guess for a clinician you're trying to work out what the primary diagnosis is like what what I mean, they could have both, but what should I be treating first or what's the thing that I, we need to get under control most importantly? And so even in those instances, you're trying to use that kind of clinical reasoning. Burnout literature and like the research is in somewhat vague and inconclusive, but I guess like with m- all mental health conditions, there is this comorbidity issue and these overlapping symptoms that can put you in, in the dark a yep. little bit.
1: Thank you. It's really well described. I'll use that treatment to, yeah, you suggested therefore can point into which treatment to try first i might use as a segue to look at treatments you in your book you discuss some results it's a, obviously quite unquote only a survey but i found it really fascinating you looked at a, a large rather large number of people who had burnout or have burnout and asked them what have you tried to tackle your burnout and how well do you think it self-rating efficacy of it can you describe some of the, the things that people gave and off the top of your head have you got any broad strokes on what seemed to work and maybe what was less effective
0: so what we found is that people nominated some things that might sound quite generic so things like exercise meditation and practicing mindfulness they were three techniques that people nominated as being really helpful but the reason that we included them in the book even though they might just sound generic and as you said we didn't we weren't doing a clinical trial to assess their effectiveness So we were just asking people like what they found helpful. But other research show like it kind of suggests why people would find those things helpful because those practices have been shown in research studies, not necessarily relating to burnout, but they show that they can reduce those physiological changes associated with chronic stress exposure. So things like um, meditation can decrease blood pressure or your pulse rate and like reduce the amount of adrenaline and cortisol going through the body. Practicing mindfulness also has been shown to decrease fight or flight activity in the amygdala in your brain. So even though these practices seem a bit generic or self-care, there there are other studies that have suggested why they would be helpful for people with burnout. What a really interesting thing that we found in our study as well is that a lot of people nominated that they had been prescribed an antidepressant for burnout. So we had about third of our participants in one of our studies say that they tried an antidepressant for burnout and of that third around 70 percent said that they found it helpful now this is really contentious because to my knowledge and i've looked into this a bit for my yeah. phd there's no randomized control trials for antidepressant treatment for burnout so like i wouldn't advocate that from a research perspective because there's no evidence base but there is a lot of reports that antidepressants are used for people with burnout and we're not sure why probably because of this overlap with depression but also the fact that common antidepressants like ssris are also good at reducing anxiety so if you're exposed to chronic stresses which are making you get burnout if these antidepressants are working to reduce your anxiety that could be a pathway as to why Mm. people are finding them helpful but yeah I want to stress that that isn't been a lack of studies looking at antidepressants specifically for burnout so we're not really sure why people are finding them so effective but as for things that weren't helpful participants said that turning to alcohol or drugs which I'm I'm sure we can all predict why that's not effective but interestingly people said that even when they tried to talk to HR or to a manager at their work they didn't really find that helpful um which was slightly dis- like concerning and disappointing i mean with hr with the manager you know they could be part of the problem while you're experiencing these stresses at work but as for talking to hr i guess you have to remember that hr they're employed by the company so yes. that's what their bottom line is which might explain why they weren't people didn't find them as helpful but i i hope optimistically that since covid especially and like the increased focus on occupational health and safety. Mm, I I predict that that will change. Like I feel like hopefully if we did the same survey in five years or 10 years time, people would be finding that HR is, or these going through a work avenue is more helpful just because there's been a kind of a change of focus and more recognition of mental health and how important it is in the workplace.
1: Yeah, I did find that very interesting that going, speaking to your manager, and going to HR was probably not terribly effective in in people's views. As you said, it could be the, the manager who is contributing to the stress. But on the flip side, it seems like the age old practice of having a vent to a friend or a family or a, you know, a loved one seemed to be um, quite effective. Can you de- describe that?
0: Yeah, so I, there has been studies looking at social support being a protective factor for burnout, which, so I guess there, it's like it's more when we talk about the manager and HR, I guess like their your best interest might not be their like number mm. one priority, whereas like if you're talking to a family member or friend, obviously like you're coming to them and they, your best interest is what they're worried about. I should also st- uh, preface that like we did this survey pre-COVID So like the book was published during COVID, but we had collected that data before COVID. So as I said, like, I'm sure that it's, we, if we did it now, we'd get different stats, but people did find, you know, again, might sound generic, but going to a support person and kind of talking through your issues and just like letting them know that you're not okay was reported by a lot of our participants as actually being one of the most helpful strategies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Fascinating we touched upon more professional say practitioner guided cbt and so forth i think in the book I, I saw some mentions i read some mentions around simple things i don't, I don't know if you got some suggestions around like work hygiene around emails and things you know just try and disconnect and lighten the load and not sweat the small stuff any practical tips that people can do without having to go to therapists and so forth to start with
0: Yes, we provide in the book, there's there's a bunch of resources at the end of the book in one of the appendices about different like apps and things that might be useful. And I know that it's a very important issue because people that have tried to get into therapists recently that will say like the waiting list is apparently accessing mental health professionals at the moment is quite a journey you know it is important to have these other techniques in case you can't get access to a professional so we talk in the book about ariana huffington who's the co-founder of the huffington post in her book thrive she kind of talks about how she experienced burnout and talked about the I guess like the technological impacts of our modern society, there was a stat about like the average employee spends more than 11 hours a week dealing with emails, which seems like a lot. And so again, like I know it's self-explanatory, but things like trying to come up with techniques. So maybe you only check your emails once a day or once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And that's it because in between that, you want to be able to actually get some work done and not just be like replying to emails because then Mm. all the tasks are just loading up, but you're not actually being able to really fix any of the issues because you're just replying to emails. And then there's also the other obvious one is like the work-life balance thing, trying not to have your work emails connected to your phone, things like that. But I would say, although they sound generic, I guess I would say that for managers, it's this the leading by example. So like saying to your employees, I don't expect you to reply to my emails outside of work hours is fine. But if you're still sending them emails outside of work hours, even though you've told them that it's don't worry about replying, they might feel like, oh, but ugh, I should just reply so that they see that I'm you yeah, know, yeah. St- still paying attention, I'm still on. So it's more that I would say, like, do as I do, not as I say is more important. So, yeah, like, even though, again, those things are kind of self-explanatory, it's actually putting them into practice, which can sometimes be, it's sometimes a lot easier said than done. So that would be, like, technological things and some other things, which there's, like, lots of different aspects apps and things that can give you techniques that are based on cbt but that you can kind of implement yourself so in the book i'll just give one example we talk about scheduled worry time
1: yeah that was good
0: yeah which is a technique where you pretty much you allocate time in your day specifically for worrying so say you allocate half an hour at five o'clock. And the point of it is that like during the day when you've got worries coming into your head, which might be really pertinent for someone with perfectionistic thinking, for example, you're supposed to notice the worry and then be like, okay, I've caught my worry. That goes into my worry time. So I'll put that into my five o'clock worry time. What you're trying to do is and then it gets to five o'clock and then you can worry for half an hour. And you can worry about all the things (laughs) you need to worry about. And the point of that is that over time you're you're firstly learning that how to notice when you're having these worrying thoughts and you're allowing yourself to not let them consume your whole day because you're allocating them to a specific time and then also you're learning how when you do worry well what's actually productive for me to worry about and what's not worth the worry like what are things that I is actually I can change if I worry about them versus things that even no matter how to worry about them it's not really going to change anything there's um, like there's specific apps for worry time for example, that when you get a worry, you put it into your app and it, it'll save it for later and then it'll tell you, <laughs> oh, it's worry time, here are the three things that you said you were going to worry about. So things like that that could be helpful that you might not necessarily need to see a professional about, but they, they are based on these CBT, like, principles.
1: It's really cool. Technology serving some good in this sense, not adding to this stress. Yes. Amazing. All right, Gabriella, we'll, we'll wrap up in a moment. So... Before we do, I'm curious, obviously, you personally, you're about to finish your PhD, and I think today you've proven, if I was to hand it out, you'd get passed the flying colours, well done. <laughs> yeah, you've, I think you've really well described the challenges and frustrations and the grey zone around this area. What would you like to see happen? And as you mentioned as well, I think, and in the book, with some of your papers, s- certain countries, such as Australia does not recognise it, other countries do, DSM doesn't, but the World Health Organisation does. In a perfect world, or, or not even perfect world, but moving forward, what would you like to see, both like from a, a research perspective or like a, a policy perspective, in around burnout?
0: Yes, it is like the biggest issue in the burnout research is this like lack of consensus, because even like countries that do recognize burnout as an occupational disease, their definitions and their diagnosis practices across those countries are all very different. So of course, like in a perfect world, there would be some consensus around that because then you've, you can get your medical professionals to be trained with evidence-based diagnosis and intervention strategies. Like that would be amazing. But there's a long way to go before that can happen. I think for me personally, I'm really interested in burnout that occurs outside of the formal workplace. So, I feel like research looking into parental burnout and things like that. So, I feel like that's an um, important avenue to go into a bit in a bit more um, detail, seeing if parental burnout is the same as formal work burnout, but or if it's different. And I just think that from a research perspective, I think that it, there's a lot of debate between different researchers and scientists and practitioners. But regardless of what that debate is, it doesn't override the fact that for the general population, like burnout is a really serious problem and it really resonates with individuals. So I would like to see more research that's kind of focusing on the individual's experiences of burnout and kind of using that to formulate how the professionals go about diagnosing and treating it. Because regardless of what the research, you know, if burnout is depression or it isn't depression or whatever, individuals still say like, I've got burnout and it's really causing me some grief. So Mm. I think that like those perspectives should be really like heralded in the research um, to learn more about why burnout is resonating so much with people in today's society.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love it. All right. So before we go, most importantly, the book, tell us about the book, where can we get it from?
0: Yes, we published the book with Alan and Unwin in Australia, but we've also just, well, I think we're in the final processes of it, or it is already released, the UK version with Taylor and Francis. So you can get either version on anywhere, bookstores, as well as like your big retailers, so Amazon, Booktopia. There's an Audible version and Kindle version, so you can get it anywhere. It's called Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery. So, yes, anywhere where you can find books, you should
1: be able to get it. Yeah, it's a it's a good read. Good science, good evidence, but good case studies as well. And sometimes it got a bit hard to read, to be honest, because it it starts resonating with yourself or myself sometimes around stresses and things, but I think then you get onto the treatments and so forth and there is a lot at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, it's a really good read. We we
0: hoped that we well, firstly, I should say it's not like a next, if, if it sounds like it's a very academic book, it's not in terms of we do talk about the research, but we also have, as you said, we've done interviews with people that um, have experienced burnout. So we've got a lot of like case studies and first person's perspective in there as well. And we also really tried to like end it on an optimistic note in that we found that all the case studies we talk, we have in there and people that gave us their essays to include they have come out the other end and they're, they've overcome their burnout so that's what we mm-hmm. really want the message to be in the book is that like yes it might sound not great for the first two thirds of the book but by the end we found that people have come out the other end and they've learnt you know changed their lives the yeah better.
1: yeah it was almost for some it was transformative obviously yeah. they went through an ordeal but probably a well-known person in our industry is Patricia King wasn't it you get a really good account of her and her ordeal and oh, the Amount of work she was doing and the crisis she went through, and I think there was a couple, a lawyer or something, that got better life work balance in the end. And so, yeah, yeah. there was some transformations there, which was really good to read. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we hope that um, you can come out feeling optimistic about it.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, Gabriella, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. I think you've done a great account, not not only today, but through your research and the the book. Congratulations. Good luck with the PhD. And maybe next time I have to refer to you as doctor and uh, you can give me some updates. Oh, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks so much for your time.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: useful links and resources, make sure you
0: check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.